Christian in the Campus is a podcast of the Rebels for Christ Campus Ministry. The college campus is a world of competing stories vying for students' attention and allegiance. The goal of this podcast is to orient students towards Christ in this brave new world so that we can bring about a revolution of redemption on the University of Mississippi and Northwest Community College campuses. All right, so um, well, welcome to uh, the RSC Connect on the deck, the last Connect for our semester together. So uh, thank you all for joining us. Thank you for a wonderful semester. I, it seems like it was not that long ago that me, Ben, and Elise sat down in the office for the summer and started planning out what we were going to teach at Connect, um, going through the Gospel of Mark, and we talked about this lesson I'm about to teach. And I was like, that's forever away. It'll be like, you know, that's like there's so much time between here and there. And it has just flown by. Um, but thank you guys for making it a absolutely wonderful and exciting semester. And tonight we're going to continue our journey in Mark chapter 8, starting in verse 1. So, uh, if you want to be turning there in your Bibles, I'm just going to start Mark chapter 8, verse 1, and then we'll kind of come back and slowly unpack uh, our text for tonight. There are going to be two different parts. Um, the first thing I'm going to read is going to be a story. It's, it's going to be our main story for this evening. But then Jesus is going to have a quick little dialogue um, with his apostles. And that'll be where we spend most of our time tonight is unpacking uh, the significance of what he's talking with them about, why he brings it up, and, and, and what it all means. So Mark chapter 8, starting in verse 1. During those days, another large crowd gathered. Since they had nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion for these people. They have already been with me three days and have nothing to eat. If I send them home hungry, they will collapse on the way because some of them have come a long distance. Okay, so pause there really briefly. Uh, this passage opens up and it says, in those days. And so uh, if you were here, not last week, because last week was Thanksgiving, but if you were here the week before that, do you remember the story that Ben taught on? Do you remember specifically where that story took place? Is, is actually 10 cities. Yes, yes, the 10 cities. Uh, and what's significant about that? It's different from Jerusalem. It's different than Galilee. In what way? What kind of people live there? Gentiles. Yes, correct. So uh, it's taking place in the Decapolis, in this region of the 10 cities. It's where these Gentile people live. Um, and so when it says during those days, what it means is Jesus is still in the Decapolis. He's still in these 10, this region of the 10 cities where um, these Gentiles all live. And he's going about... And in, in his you know, process of going through and casting out demons and healing people, um, in, in the work that the guy who was demon-possessed with the Legion kind of did and, and running around spreading word about Jesus, he now has this huge crowd of people that have gathered around him, and he has this concern. He's moved with compassion for these Gentile people. If you remember last week, Jesus has somewhat of an uh, uncomfortable or difficult saying when he's talking to the Syrophoenician woman, and he compares her to a dog. And last week, Ben talked about how um, oftentimes that text can be misinterpreted, and we can hear Jesus as more harsh or aggressive than he actually is. Um, and, and he talked about all the different wrong interpretations and why he thinks it's a more gentle, more kind and gracious interpretation. But if you have any doubt in your mind, whether or not Jesus loves the Gentile people. If you have any doubt in your mind whether or not he has concern for them, whether or not he has compassion for them, what this passage says literally is that he's moved to the depths of his person. He's, he's heartache. His gut is wrenched seeing these people who are hungry. He has deep compassion for these Gentile people. He doesn't want to send them away because he knows that some of them have come from very far, and if he sends them away, they may collapse and so he starts looking for a way to feed these people. His disciples answered, But where in this remote place can anyone get enough bread to feed them? 
Okay, so pause there really quickly again. So far, does this story sound familiar to you at all? Have we encountered any story like this so far in the Gospel of Mark? Yes. Okay, so what happened in the last story? Okay, so the Seraphonician woman. But is there another? Yes, so, so you're exactly right. The Seraphonician come. Yes, feeding of the 5,000, correct. And what happens in that story? He feeds the 5,000. Okay, yes. Oh, it's, it's the exact, it's this huge crowd. They've come to this remote place, this wilderness. And there's this huge group of people around. And Jesus has moved compassion. He's moved to compassion for this huge group of people. And he says, uh, you know, hey, we should feed these people. And the disciples are like, what do you mean? How can we feed these people? And he says, well, go see how much bread they have. They have a certain amount of loaves. He brings it back. And he says, okay, now uh, go hand it out. And miraculously, this bread multiplies, the fish multiply, and he feeds the people. So if you made that connection in your head, right here, the disciples answered, but where in this remote place can anyone get enough bread to feed them? What's the answer? Where, where can they get enough bread to feed them? What's Jesus. the secret? Jesus, yes, boom. Okay, if you made that connection, congratulations. You're moving quicker than the disciples were. You're better than the apostles. You're, you're, you're crushing the game. Uh, so that's important to note, right? Like the apostles completely miss it. They've seen Jesus do this exact thing already before. They've seen him miraculously provide for a huge crowd of people. And he says, hey, we should feed these people. And their first question is like, yeah, but Jesus, where are we going to get the bread from? So just keep, keep in mind, there's already some irony at play. The apostles, again, play the role of the fool. They're kind of missing Jesus' point. And you'll see the story repeats itself almost exactly. How many loaves do you have? Jesus asked. Seven, they replied. He told the crowd to sit down on the ground. When he had taken the seven loaves and given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to distribute to the people, and they did so. They had a few small fish as well. He gave thanks for them also and told the disciples to distribute them. The people ate and were satisfied. It's not just that they were eight and they had just enough to get them by. It's not that they ate just enough to get to the closest town and then they could have enough food. They ate until all the people were fully satisfied. Afterward, the disciples picked up seven basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. About 4,000 were present. After he had sent them away, he got into the boat with his disciples and he went to the region of Delimanutha. Okay, so pause there for just a minute. Jesus has done the exact same thing he already did before. He feeds this large crowd of people. He provides them with a few small loaves and a few fish. But there's a big difference between this one and the last one. We've already kind of hit it. What are some of the differences in this passage? There are, there are a couple. Some of them are minor. But what, what's, what's a big difference between this one and the last one? Yes. 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 He's now feeding the Gentiles, right? He's he's bringing this food and this sustenance to the Gentile people. That's exactly correct. That's the big difference. And we don't fully understand how how scandalous, how significant of a difference that is, right? Jesus would have been conceived of as the Jewish people's Messiah. He's he's the leader and the promised person for the Jewish people. And what that means is he's there to serve and to cater to the Jewish people's need. That's what the first century Jews would have been thinking. This is our Messiah. He's our guy. So when he feeds the 5,000 people, when he displays his miraculous power and ability to, to, to feed and sustain an army that's lost in the middle of a wilderness, when he displays that kind of power for the Jewish people, it makes sense because he's our Messiah. But now he's out here in the Decapolis 
in a region that's filled with pagans, filled with people who aren't in relationship with our God, Yahweh. He's not their Messiah. He's our Messiah. And he's feeding them just like he fed the Jewish people. Some people think this is why the disciples were confused. Some people think this is why they missed it, because they didn't expect Jesus to serve the same role to the Gentile people that he does to the Jewish people. It's a scandalous thing. And yet, if they were paying attention, if the Jewish people had been paying attention, if they knew what to be looking for when it came to a Messiah, if you heard that passage that Clay read for us just a few moments ago, God promises a Messiah that's not just for the Jewish people, but it's also for the Gentiles. Jesus goes into a region where they don't expect the kingdom of God to break in. Jesus goes into a region where they don't expect the Messiah to show up. Jesus goes into a region where they think that God cannot work and be active. And with a few small loaves and fish, he watches as the kingdom of God breaks in for the Gentile people. But there's, there's something here that I think we can easily miss. The language that gets used, and, and I think this will become important in just a second, the language that gets used here is very similar to the story of the Israelites in the Exodus. The Israelite people, a long time ago, were, were, were kept in captivity in Egypt, and immediately, they, they uh, or eventually Moses goes, and he frees them from their captivity. He leads them across the Red Sea. God parts the waters and, and drowns the armies of Pharaoh that are pursuing them behind them, and they end up in the wilderness, and they're going towards this promised land that God has offered towards them. And they start their journey, but really quickly, they realize they're missing something significant. What are they missing? They begin to grumble to Moses and Aaron and towards God about this thing they're missing. It's something we all need. What is it? Food. Yeah. They're like, God, we should have stayed in Egypt. We were better off as slaves there because at least we had food to eat. They're frustrated. They're angry and upset with God. They, but, but a lot of the language that's there gets used here. Again, they're in a desolate place. The, first, uh, the, the original language says it's a wilderness, right? So it's the same sort of setting the Israelite people And what was the response? How did God fix this problem for his people? Manna, bread from heaven. And here what we see is Jesus taking bread and looking towards the heavens and breaking it and giving it to the people. And the result was the Israelite people were satisfied. They all ate to their fill. Out of God's movement of compassion for his people, they all ate until they were satisfied. What we see here is a replaying of the story that happens in Exodus, but instead of Jews, it's Gentiles. And another key difference, the Gentiles aren't grumbling. The Gentiles aren't frustrated. They're not angry towards God. They're not saying, we were better off as slaves. They realize that what's happening is they found someone who cares about them. They found someone who is interested in bridging the gap between them and God. They found someone who is looking to reconcile them into right relationship with the maker and the creator of the universe. And for three days, they follow this guy into the wilderness without a second thought, without a hesitation, and with no grumbling. And Jesus faithfully provides for them. The kingdom of God begins to break in, but not just for the Jewish people, not just for the people of Israel. The kingdom of God begins to break in in the Gentile world as well. And this is a hugely significant thing because you guys, this is God's plan and intent from the beginning of time. In the beginning, God creates a perfect world where everything is set in right order. And here we see the first steps towards Jesus restoring that world order. The kingdom of God breaks in and we see this vision, a glimpse of what God has planned when all people from all nations 
from every tribe and every tongue, from all places over all the earth, live under the rule and the reign of God when all things are set right, when we live in a world that is Eden on earth, where God walks among his people and they relate to him in a way that's helpful and holy. They relate to him as they were meant to. Where humans relate to one another as they meant to. There's no lying or cheating or stealing. There's no fear of one another or taking advantage of another person, but instead they treat each other with respect and love and dignity. They care for their neighbor. They relate to creation in a right way. What we see here is the beginning of God's mission for the world, that all the earth would be set back to its proper order. We see that begin to take place here as Jesus goes and feeds the Gentiles and sees their faithfulness. The kingdom of God is working and moving and breaking in in ways they didn't even think was possible or imaginable, and the apostles get to be there to witness it. We're not done with our story just yet. Verse 11, this is what we read. The Pharisees came and began to question Jesus. So he, he leaves the, the Decapolis. He leaves the region of the, those pagans who, who don't have anything to God, who there's no hope for them. He leaves that region and he goes back to Judea. And the Pharisees came and began to question Jesus to test him. They asked him for a sign from heaven. He sighed deeply and said, why does this generation ask for a sign? Truly, I tell you, no sign will be given to it. Then he left them, got back into the boat, and crossed to the other side. And here again, we see language ripped directly from the Exodus. But this time, it's not them in, in the wilderness, and it's not an example of faithfulness. Here what we see is the Pharisees playing the role of the, the generation in Israel that was denied entrance to the promised land because of their lack of faith in God. That word generation that gets used all throughout the Old Testament is a signpost for the generation that failed in the wilderness. When it says that they test him, it's the same language that the Israelite people do to God in the story of the Exodus. They test him and ask for signs from heaven. When it says that Jesus sighs deeply, it's the same wording and language that gets used when God becomes frustrated with the Israelite people. He has a, a hotness and anger in his breath, a frustration towards them. We see the story of the Exodus played out, but here the Pharisees are completely unfaithful. What's demonstrated is this posture of unbelief. There's this huge irony that takes place in the story because Jesus comes back and he, the Pharisees ask him for a sign from heaven that, that he is who he claims to be. What's ironic about that? What did Jesus just get done doing? Yes, he, he had a few loaves and a few fish and he fed a crowd of 4,000 people. The promised moment where the kingdom of God begins to break in, not just in Israel, but to the ends of the earth and all of creation is restored to what it's meant to be. That's what's happening and the Pharisees are asking for a sign that he is who he says he is. Before that, he fed the 5,000. Before that, he healed the leper. Before that, he healed the paralytic man. He's cast out demons. He's raised a little girl from the dead. And these Pharisees have the audacity to come before him and say, give us a sign from heaven that proves that you say who you are. The Pharisees have a posture of unbelief towards Jesus something we've talked about a little bit before this semester. It's different than doubt, right? Doubt is this earnest seeking for truth. To doubt something means that you, you want to, to test it, to, to ask questions, to probe and discern whether or not it's true or false. You have this true desire to find what is actually true in the situation, but they have this posture of unbelief. They refuse 
to see the signs that Jesus has given them. They refuse to engage with the person of Jesus because it means the kingdom of God doesn't break in for them in their own way where they get to keep their power and their lifestyle. But instead they would have to subject themselves to King Jesus who breaks in the kingdom of God, not just in Israel, but all throughout God's creation. This posture of unbelief in the Pharisees and Jesus is frustrated. He's, he's done with it. His response. Then he left them. He got back into the boat and crossed to the other side. He returns. Because here's the thing. The Pharisees, their posture of unbelief, these people who, who God had wanted to work with for so long, this unfaithful and unhelpful generation, they cannot stop. They will not stop the inbreaking of the kingdom of God. The moment has come. The promise time when God's kingdom is active in the world, when all things begin to be set right forever. It's the significance of this moment. And that's our main story for tonight. That's the story that I, I want you to, to come away from this semester with. That's the story I want you to, to see in, in all of its full vision, is that God's intent is that the kingdom of God is going to break in for all people in all times, every tribe and nation and tongue, even the people that we don't think are deserving of it. God's kingdom is going to break in so that all things are restored and made right, so people can relate with God again in the way they were intended to. People can relate with one another in the way they were intended to. People can relate to creation in the way they were intended to. That's the story that I want you to see, is that Jesus is working and active to restore his kingdom so that all things might be made right. That's the story I want us to walk away with to the end of the semester. But that's not, believe it or not, even though that's the main story, even though I want you to be caught up in that story, it's not the main point for tonight. The main point comes from this next little brief dialogue that Jesus is going to have with his apostles. I'm just going to read it in its entirety, and then we're going to back up it and walk through it. Mark chapter 8, verse 14. The disciples had forgotten to bring bread, except for one loaf they had with them in the boat. Be careful, Jesus warned. Watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. They discussed this with one another and said, It is because we have no bread. Aware of the discussion, Jesus asked them, Why are you talking about having no bread? Do you still not see or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes but fail to see and ears but fail to hear? And don't you remember, when I broke the five loaves and, the five, and fed for the 5,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? Twelve, they replied. And when I broke the seven loaves for the 4,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? They answered, seven. And he said to them, do you still not understand? So don't lose picture of that, that story, right? The kingdom of God breaking in for all people, all things being set right and made pure and, and restoration, the way things are meant to be. Hold on to that story. But notice here, Jesus has this bizarre exchange with his apostles where once again, they just completely, they just completely miss the point, right? Once again, they play the role of the fool in this story. They, they start off, they forgot to bring any bread, right? Jesus just made seven baskets of wonder bread, like miracle bread, and they, they don't pack any of it for their journey. They completely forget. They're in the boat. They're embarrassed they don't have any bread, and Jesus says to them, be careful. Watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. Jesus is a rabbi, a teacher, and he's a big fan of speaking in puzzles. This is classic rabbi, teacher, Jesus. What he's warning them about is that posture of unbelief that's in the hearts of the Pharisees and that of the Herodians. 
He's warning them, hey, don't fall into the same trap. Don't get so caught up in, in seeing the kingdom of God break in your way for your people the way you want it to on your own terms, but be willing to engage with me. Be willing to submit to my authority as King Jesus. Be willing for the unexpected in the kingdom of God. We've talked about that a lot this semester, of meeting Jesus on his own terms, and that's what he's warning them about here. And yet again, the it's, it's clearly a metaphor, right? It's clearly a parable. It's some kind of teaching moment, and the apostles are like, ah, Jesus knows we forgot to pack the bread. Like, that's, that's their concern in this moment. They completely, they completely miss it. They completely misunderstand the point. They're, they're so concerned with the fact that Jesus is going to be upset that they forgot to pack any bread. They're so worried about it. And then Jesus says, why are you talking about having no bread? Do you still not see or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes but fail to see and ears but fail to hear? This is the same language that he's used all throughout the Gospel of Mark so far. When he's talking about people who are on the outside of the kingdom of God, he's putting the apostles in this moment of people who are outside of the kingdom of God, who don't see, who don't understand, whose hearts are not open to the working of Jesus, to the powerful breaking in of the kingdom of God. They're completely missing it. And then he asks them these strange questions. When I broke the five loaves to the 5,000, how many basketfuls did you pick up? When I broke it for the 4,000, how many basketfuls did you pick up? And here the point that Jesus is making is that when he broke it for the Israelite people, there were 12 full baskets symbolizing the 12 tribes of Israel that Jesus was enough to sustain and fill them and feed them. And when it happens in the Galilean or in the uh, Gentile towns, when it happens to the people that aren't supposed to get a part of the kingdom of God, there are seven baskets. This number in Hebrew literature is symbolic for the fullness of the kingdom of God coming. He says, this is the moment we've been waiting for where the kingdom of God finally breaks in. How many baskets did you pick up? Twelve. How many baskets did you pick up? Seven. These are numbers that in the minds of Hebrew people should have been triggering language of the kingdom of God breaking in. Of the exciting moment that they had just gotten to witness and see, and yet they completely miss it. And he leaves off with this question. Do you still not understand? I think it's a question that Jesus wants us to grapple with a little bit tonight as well. I think it's easy for us to hear about the apostles and their stupidity. You know, they're so focused on the bread. They're so focused on what they forgot that they completely miss who Jesus is. How could they be so foolish? Do they not understand? But yet Jesus isn't upset about the bread. He isn't upset that they don't see the power of the miracle. He isn't upset that they don't trust in the fact that he could produce bread for them like that if he wanted to. Jesus is upset. What he's upset they don't understand is his identity. They've seen him feed the 5,000 and the 4,000. They've heard his teachings and he's explained to them what it means. He's healed the leper and the broken and the sick and the wounded and showed that he is able to overcome the spiritual forces of evil and darkness in their lives. And yet they still don't understand who Jesus is, or what to do with it. And those are the same two questions we've been grappling with all semester. Who is Jesus, and what are you going to do with him? And, and, and as they sit there and have seen all these different things, and we've gone through this journey with them in the Gospel of Mark this semester, how could they miss it? And yet, before we're too quick to judge, how often do we find ourselves in the same place as the apostles? How often are we so consumed with the immediate needs in our lives that we completely misunderstand who Jesus is 
and what he's doing in our lives. You live in a, in a specific place, in a specific culture as college students, in a time of your life where everyone around you will tell you that your four years here are all about you. What major are you going to choose? What kind of job is that going to get you after you get there? What kind of money can you make? What kind of lifestyle can you afford? Are you going to find your significant other while you're here? Are you going to get married? Are you going to have kids? Are you going to find yourself? What are your hobbies and your interests? What are your passions? What do you want to do with the rest of your life? Who are you? All these questions that people throw at you. It's your job here to figure out over the next four years what you're going to do. What's your five-year plan? Where are you going to be in five years? And maybe once you get all that sorted out, then that's when you go back and say, okay, now how, how do I work Jesus a little bit into my life? It's this immediate concern that people are going to put in front of you. There's a lot on your plate to figure out. And here's the thing. It's not that those are bad concerns. It's not that you shouldn't be asking, what are you going to major in? It's not that you shouldn't be asking, where are you going to be in five years? Who your significant other is going to be? Are you going to get married? What are your passions and hobbies? Th those things aren't bad to ask. It's not bad that the apostles are concerned about bread. That's fine. What the issue is, is whenever we, we let our immediate concerns, the things we see right in front of us, blind us to the work of the kingdom of God breaking in all around us. That's why Jesus is upset. And the question I want us to reflect on tonight is, is there something in your life, are there immediate concerns that you are so consumed with, so focused on, so completely enraptured in, that you're missing the kingdom of God breaking in, in your life and on your campus? Are you so consumed and concerned with what your major is going to be and what, what kind of job you're going to have and how much money that you're going to make that you've forgotten to ask yourself the question, how am I going to use my major, the skills that I get, the tools that I have to serve in the kingdom of God? How am I going to use the resources that I generate? How am I going to use the training that I get, my job, you know, all the different things I'm going to be in five years, those, those big plans? How am I going to use those things to serve in the kingdom of God? How does Jesus influence those things? Because if you haven't asked that question, you do not see, you do not hear, your heart has been hardened, and you've completely misunderstood. When it comes to the question of a significant other, if you should date someone, if you should continue to date someone, if you're going to get married, if you're going to have kids, when it comes to those questions, yes, they're important to ask, but if you haven't stopped to ask the question, how is my relationship with my significant other a powerful tool for the kingdom of God? If you haven't stopped to ask, how is Jesus using this relationship to benefit me and other people? Your heart's been hardened. You, you aren't hearing and you aren't seeing and you've completely misunderstood the point, if you've lost yourself in this mad scramble to find out who you are, to find your identity and the things that you do or curating the perfect college experience and, and putting together the perfect set of extracurriculars and all the right classes and all the right experiences with all the right people, but you haven't yet stopped to ask, how is Jesus using this to let the kingdom of God break in in a powerful and profound way in the campus and in my life? And you completely miss the point right now, right here, Jesus wants to do something extremely impressive, extremely profound, and extremely important in your life and on the college campus. Not in five years once you've figured everything out. Not once you have the significant other you've been looking for. Not once you've discovered your true identity and your passions and your excitement right now, right here, all this semester and all next semester, Jesus wants you not to get lost in yourself, but to get lost in the story of the power of the kingdom of God breaking in to your campus.
And the question that I want us to leave with is, is yes, that story of what does it look like for the kingdom of God to break into the ends of the earth for all people, for all times, for me to be in right relationship with God, with other people, with creation, but also for the people on campus to get caught up in that same revolution of redemption. And how do I play a part in that right now, a moment that has significance, not just for the here and now, but for all eternity? How do I get caught up in this movement as the person of Jesus changes everything about my life? What I want us to ask tonight is, are there moments, are there things, are there immediate concerns in your life that have blinded you to the powerful work of the kingdom of God in your life? We're going to split up into groups in just a second and ask that question. But before we do, I want to challenge you as you go through the rest of this extremely busy season with all these competing issues of grades and, and, and finals and I'm sure some of you are making plans for the next semester, co-ops and internships and all those different things for the summer. But also as you get ready to go home and have some more quiet time to yourself, what I want you to ask yourself is, do you seek? Are you looking for the kingdom of God being active and present in your life? Do you hear, are you listening to God for opportunities of where he wants you and what he's doing on this campus? Is your heart hardened or have you softened it so that you will subject yourself in every arena of your life to the wisdom and the power and the love of King Jesus? And over the next couple of weeks, but especially over the winter break, as you have some time where things are more slow, what does it look like to set aside some of those more immediate concerns and lose yourself in the power of the kingdom of God? Um, we're going to break up into groups um, one last time before the semester ends here. And so uh, just one, one question I want you to focus on is, what are some immediate concerns that have blinded you to what Jesus is doing and what the kingdom of God is doing in your life and on your campus what are some immediate circumstances or immediate concerns that have blinded you to what the kingdom of God is doing in your life? 